Welcome along to the second ever live recording of the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and uh, it is so lovely to be in the same room as my two co-hosts tonight. I haven't seen a lot of them in the same room over the last couple of years for the podcasts, uh, but I will start off by welcoming Sue Grimmett to the podcast. Sue, thank you for, for being here. It's lovely to be here and really nice to be here with lots of faces before us. Absolutely, and uh, Peter Cat is here as well. Peter, we are in the Darnell room here at the Cathedral. Is about... Um, 30 or 40 people. I might ask them to clap, actually, just to prove I'm not making a clap. <laughs> there we go. Just, oh, we've just set off the baby. The baby in the room <laughs> did not enjoy the clapping. I'm an, and that is my nephew, so I'm an awful Well done, Uncle, Uncle Dom. <laughs> Off to a flying start. Rave reviews already. Uh, it is so lovely to be here in the Darnell Room, though, Peter, for our second ever live podcast. Thank you for, for hosting us here in the Cathedral It's uh, really great. And this once upon a time was the children's ward, so Roman is really at home. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful, lovely. Well, um, we're, we're going to welcome our guest in in a moment and set the context for the episode. Um, but sort of a, as an overview of the scope of what we're going to explore today, marriage, sexuality, relationships and intimacy are all among the most important and central aspects of our lives as part of the human experience. And they're also among the things we often find most complex and uh, look for guidance and wisdom on. Uh, and so much of this conversation that we're, we're having at the moment is going to be about the role the Bible can play in guiding us in these areas and, and maybe, perhaps more importantly, the role the Bible can't play in guiding us in these areas. Before we welcome our guest, Peter, um, why do you think this is such an important conversation to have? Important conversation? Well, um, if the family is the base institution for society, and uh, we were thinking about that earlier today, that the family, not just the nuclear family, but the family, uh, the wider family, is the base institution, then how you form families actually really matters. And so marriage is one of the ways in which we do that. And so... We need to have a really good conversation about how we form marriages, what they look like, and sex is part of that. <laughs> and uh, Sue, if you listen to any um, pop song, watch any movie, read any book, the issues of relationships, of sex, of marriage, of intimacy, these are the most common themes we keep exploring as humans as these central ideas to the human experience. Why do you think they're areas we, we find so complex to, to navigate? Yeah, well, they are certainly at the heart of human desires and the, the, the things that uh, and our human longings are all wrapped up around these things. So that's why movies, stories, everything else. But it becomes incredibly difficult because we have, um, we're talking about morals and it's one of those things that when we start talking about people's different um, moral viewpoints, it becomes, oh, maybe that's not a conversation we have over dinner and we're aware of people's differing opinions and, and the minefield of where they came from. But it's also because as soon as we're talking about sex and sexuality, the, every culture across time and history has had taboos around sex and sexuality. And as soon as you're talking about taboos, you're bringing shame into the room as well. And as soon as you've got shame into the room, you've got um, the very thing that binds us up as people, stops us being free and shuts down conversations and makes things go into hiding instead of being able to open them up and talk about what really, because they are about the most important human relationships, we need to be able to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, look, we're, we're going to look at the same-sex marriage situation uh, in a little bit of depth in this conversation, but the main focus is going to probably largely be around the role the Bible plays and what the Bible actually is and, and how it should be used in relation to 
to these aspects of the human experience. And with that said, it is a good time to welcome in our guest. Uh, the Reverend Associate Professor Matthew Anstey is a research fellow at Charles Sturt University and a priest in the Anglican Diocese of Adelaide. He's also become a leading voice in making the case for same-sex blessings and marriage within the church. In the week that we are recording this, actually, he has found himself in newspapers across the country and on TV shows like The Project uh, making this case. Uh, Matthew, firstly, thank you so much for joining us for a live podcast. It's great to be here, unexpected. It, well, oh, this was planned, but the media was all unexpected. Yeah, yes, it's been quite a week for you. Um, well, maybe as a starting point, I think a criticism often thrown at people who maybe find themselves in, in what is often labelled the progressive side of Christianity, a criticism thrown at them is that they don't take the Bible seriously. If you're pro-same-sex marriage, if you have a more progressive view on these things, you mustn't be taking the Bible very seriously. Yet I dare say there's not too many people in this country who have taken the Bible more seriously than you as a, as a biblical scholar. You've given your life to it in, in many ways. Um, maybe firstly, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where your love of, of the Bible itself comes from? And, and secondly, how frustrating you find it when people accuse you of, uh, of not taking this, this uh, library of books too seriously? You may have to remind me of the first one, the second question, because I might be here for the whole 30 minutes talking on the first one. Uh, why, why, why do I love the scriptures? Um, for me, uh, it's in the encounter with scripture and, and in reading it, preaching it, praying it, um, exegeting it together, that it, it speaks to us, it, it, it rattles us, it, it um, asks questions of us that we weren't expecting. I've spent the last two days at St Francis Theological College and I, was, I had a plan for the class but I decided I'm here live with the with, um, students, I might as well uh, do work on just actual texts themselves. So we spent all of yesterday, five hours or six hours, just on Genesis chapter 32, the Jacob wrestling, and then all, all this morning on um, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. It's a good pre preparation. <laughs> and I think all of us, there's that experience of reading it and hearing it and asking questions and being asked questions is what brings it to life. So it's not something that can be determined in advance or that can be determined or agreed to abstractly, uh, in, in abstract. And also, I told this, with Solomon Gomorrah, it's a famous story. It's one of the texts involved in the debate about human sexuality, even though it's probably one of the ones least related to human sexuality in, in many levels. And I, I had a fresh sense, and I think the students did too, of, of just how horrific this particular story is in the level of, of, of human violence. Um, it's entirely male-dominated. Um, the the voice, the names, everything of, of the of the women there is ignored. We have no we have no understanding of what it was like for the women in the story, the two young girls who are offered up the, the two young virgins, what it was like for them to live through that. And one of the things I did towards the end was I said to because we had a, a few female students and a few male students, so I said to the female uh, students who are training to be Anglican clergy, I said I want you to imagine. You have been asked to speak at an all-girls Anglican school and you've got 215 to 17-year-old teenage girls mm. and, and the chaplain has given you this text to talk on. What would you say? And they um, were struggling. It was a tough question. Um, but I wanted them to really you know, work hard. 
and they thought, well, we could, you know, talk about the patriarchy of the text, and you know, they they sort of gave answers which um, were valid. You know, that we they want to warn the girls before we started looking at it that it may be upsetting. That's also important. And so, and they were great ideas. And then I said, well, what about this way? What about you, you do that, and then you say, you, I'm, imagine sitting in the room with the two young girls who are. Just so let me tell you a bit about the story. This is a story where, just very quickly, and I'll do what I was, the imaginary thing. So, uh, two angels come to Sodom. They're going to. They say they want to stay in the in the city for the night. And Lot says, No, no, no. You must come back to my place. They say, No, no, no. We want to stay. And Lot says, No, must come back. They they go to back to Lot's house. He cooks them a meal. Then the text says, All the people, all the men of the town, the young men, the old men, every single man in the town comes to the house, bangs on the door, and says. We want to know the two men who have come to you, the two angels. They're called angels. We want to know them, which is euphemistic for you know, sex, have, have sex. And Lot comes out and says, no, 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 you can't do that. They're my guests. But I've got two virgin daughters. You can have them instead. And that's the shocking part, right, <laughs> clearly. And they said, no, no, we don't want that. You know, and they try to force them, their way through, through Lot, through the house, and the angels pull Lot in, save him, and then they say, we've all got to flee, and then they, blind, they, they make the men of that town blind, and then the story moves on. So I'd ask them, if you had to present on this text, where you've got these two young virgin girls, uh, not named, we don't know anything. So I said, try this on it if you went to the school. You know, you're sitting in the room with these teenage girls, just chatting about life and whatever, had a meal, then you hear the front door open and, and you can tell by the footsteps your dad's left. And then about half an hour later you hear clearly two or three people come back and then you hear, the, you smell the food being cooked and you and your sister, you're, you're, you're thinking, oh, I wonder what this is about, lovely smell, dad's cooking again. We'll go out, we'll meet these people, you, you chat with them, oh, lovely meal, go back to your room, you know, just mulling things over. Then you hear this pounding, this pounding. The, the, the ground is shaking. These clearly dozens or hundreds of people. You hear them shouting. You're screaming, and they're outside, and then they're, they're banging on the door. And then you hear your dad go out, and you think, "My, what's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to him?" And and then I did two versions. So version one was you just sit there and you just panic, and then mum opens the door and says, "You know, just stay here, stay here. Whatever you do, don't go out." And 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 then very quickly later comes back and says, "Pack your bags. We've got to flee." Right, so that way of telling, retelling that story from the women's perspective, but telling that way where they don't know what their father's that he's offered them up. Right, even then it's powerful. But then suddenly the, those women have that agency. The story comes to life, and their voice is retrieved. And yeah, and and that's what you can do with these texts. They're written in such a way that they can be brought to life and thought about from all these different angles. And then I said. Quickly, can I can edit it out later if it's too long? But <laughs> I've already forgotten the second question. But I said, okay, this is a more radical version. Do the same thing. They hear their father go out. They hear the crowd. They hear the men shouting, and then they sneak up to the front door and they put their ear along and they listen and they hear their father say, "No way can you have sex with those two men. You can, but you can have my two daughters." And they're sitting listening behind the door. What? What? What did my? What, what did my father just... No way. He, you, 
you know, imagine the shock mm. of being a teenage girl in, in that culture, a virgin, and you're hearing your father offer you up to a, dozens and dozens, you know. I mean, you, you, you suddenly, the story is just, the horror of it hits you. And if you tell it that way, I think when the angels came to ask them to pack up and flee, I reckon they would have found them gone already. And, and probably, you know, you could imagine they never want to see their father again. So suddenly the simple little story that's been used as one of the famous clobber texts about because of the association with Sodom and sodomy, suddenly we're not even talking about um, LGBTQIA plus issues here. We're talking about these fundamental questions around violence and violation and assault and the disruption in the family and... That's what it means to take scripture seriously, to get into it, to, to live into it, to, to let it breathe. And, and what we, when we say that scripture is God-breathed, I, what I have come to understand, and the church teaches, I believe, as well, that, that the scripture generates particular sorts of conversations in the, in God, among God's people. So I've told it this way. We could just stop right now and just talk about that, and we could go for weeks and weeks and weeks um, and because we all suddenly enter that story from one angle or a different angle, and yeah, that's so. It's in the telling. It, it's in the entering into it. Uh, we we find okay. This is the word of God. And I suppose something you've just probably highlighted quite effectively through that story is how complex dealing with the Bible is. I remember when I was in youth group, there was sort of a was seen as almost an achievement for those who, had, who could say they'd read the whole Bible from start to finish. and So here's me as a 13 to 14-year-old boy reading the Bible from start to finish. And I remember getting to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and there were, there were words I didn't, you know, a bit heavy for me, but thinking, how is this something that people... Because we catch up at youth group and my friends would say, I was so moved by that part of the Bible or I was so moved when I read the whole Bible and I'd think, are we reading the same book here? That's pretty horrific to me. Yeah. And so we're, we're talking about, like, this is... And this is something, we, the four of us were at a dinner last night and something you said, Sue especially from, a, I suppose, a, a feminist point of view, is that if we're using the Bible as a reference point for wisdom and guidance when it comes to sex, sexuality, relationships, there is a lot of horrific stuff in there, especially um, targeted at women. How do we even begin to, to come at this in a, in a helpful way? Yeah, there, there is certainly a, a lot of um, stuff that is just gruelling to read. And I love what Matthew's saying about reading it from different points of view because often for... Um, the women's are obscured, you know, or silenced or not named. And, you know, certainly the way I was taught to read the Bible, I didn't even notice the women most of the time because we had our Sunday school pictures and they were of all the, the male heroes. We had, you know, may have got Ruth, may have got a look in, but there, and, the, and Mary, you know, but there weren't that many. And, and it's been a rediscovery for me to, to, to discover all of these women and their stories and to see it from that point of view. But I, I think there is the horror... Um, that um, women's experience of sexual violence is all there in scripture and so obviously in churches when we're in morning prayer we often find because our lectionary gives us the full bible in all its glory and so we'll often find some of these texts that are really um, very um, violent and uh, you know they, we need to find a way to unpack them and talk about them and I think, though, that they are, you know, they, one of the strengths of the Bible is that it gives us, you know, the, the full warts and all, and that's a light way of saying something horrific, really, but, you know, of, of human experience and human violence, it's all there for us to see. And we're not 
it's not all there for us to mimic. You know, I think sometimes we've got this idea that some we have to kind of the Bible is there to be copied. That whatever the biblical heroes chose to do was somehow God ordained, and that's not the way to read Scripture. This it's the story of of these people acting out their lives and often causing great harm and doing violence to relationships, not just with God but one, with one another and the earth. You know, and we we need to get inside those stories and 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 sit with them for a while. Some of them are, you know, like a, a lessons in what not to do as much as what to do. You know, they are multifaceted and just to to pick up particularly the stories of those who maybe aren't front and centre of the stage show. So I suppose if you are a you know someone going through the church, you're probably going to to look to the Bible um, for guidance on all sorts of things in life. And, and as we mentioned at the very beginning, marriage, sexuality, relationships is one of those big things you will look to the Bible for context, uh, for wisdom, for guidance. And if you, if you pick up that particular story, maybe the guidance, if you read it as, you know, as clearly as it's written, is a pretty horrific sort of guidance, which I suppose then leads to the question, um, which we will be unpacking throughout the course of the conversation, how should we use the Bible? What, what can the Bible give us in these areas. But Matthew, what I wanted to ask you early on in the conversation was um, about the, I guess, the allegation thrown your way, thrown the way of many progressives that you're not actually reading the Bible, you don't care about the Bible, you're just being swept up by culture and trying to find a palatable version of the Bible that can fit that, um, whereas the conservative movement might more so say, we're just reading the scripture, we just take it seriously as it is, and we're not letting culture impact our read of it. What's your response to, to that um, commonly thrown around line? Oh, I would respond at, at, at many levels. Uh, firstly, I would, it's one of the things I've consistently done in my writing is to say uh, that the conservatives are doing exactly what we're doing but are in denial about it so that there's a, there's a mythology within fundamentalism and literalism that the mythologies along the lines of, you know, the, the text speaks all of its own it's almost the idea that if I put the Bible in a room overnight with a with a uh, on record, I could wake up tomorrow and listen, and it would you know give me truth. It would actually speak because they say the Bible says the Bible says. That's a that's a metaphor. I speak. Peter speaks. Sue speaks. The church speaks uh, as a body. Um, so it's partly partly I want to critique the the met, the, the metaphors, the ideas they they're using to justify that, and to say that. We're all reading in context of culture because this is the only world we have. This is the world God enters into and entered into in Christ and it's the only form of reality we have. There's, you can't separate us out somehow and ignore, ignore the world. Um, so that, that's one part of it. The other thing is there's, there's lots of deep philosophical, I believe, deep philosophical problems with the idea of literalism and... Uh, immediacy that the idea that you can just read the text and, and it has a, some sort of plain meaning that it can immediately come off and come to me and I can understand it without any mediation and the story we just talked about in Genesis 19 uh, you know we, what are we going to read off that what, where's the moral there's no there's no moral there's no nothing explained we could say oh well you know it's clear because God's on the side of the angels who struck blind the the uh, the men of the town and I said, another question I put to them was, imagine you've been invited to the uh, annual conference of Blind Christian Church, and you've, you're preaching to 200 blind people. Are you going to stand up and say, 
You know, when, when God uh, punished these people, the outcome of that punishment was the disability everybody in this room has. Mm-hmm. You see, they're problematic things. So one of the things I say often to the fundamentalists is that, I, you know, I, I think you're not taking the Bible seriously. You're not taking the literature, the language, the complexities. You're reading in a way that's is shallow and brittle and, and naive. And, but also the, all the things you're claiming that I'm doing and others are doing in this way of reading, you're also doing and, and you're in denial of that too. And I think it's incredibly instructive at this point to look to historical precedents. So a lot of uh, recently I've done a lot uh, in the past, but also recently again I've been reading a lot about the debates about around slavery and uh, what Anglicans in particular said in the mid, mid-19th century. You know, things like, you know, white people are kings, uh, the idea of equality is ridiculous. There's absolutely no justification for equality between different people. We're kings, they're slaves, that's it. This is you know, bishops of the Anglican Church. They produce, some of them produced pamphlets where they retold biblical stories. They're one of the favourite stories they loved to retell was Genesis 3, and it started like this. Now the, now the Negro gardener was more crafty than anybody else, and the Negro gardener said to the woman, did God really say you shouldn't eat of the tree? So let's retell the story, switch out the serpent and replace it with a Negro male or a Negro woman. So this idea, and, and, and the church is justifying it. The first Anglican bishop invited to preach at Lambeth. You may have heard Lambeth was on recently. So the very first Anglican bishop to preach was one of the most pro-slavery bishops in the whole Anglican church. He was, when, he went to Ox, when he went to England, preached at Lambeth and he went to Oxford and received an honorary doctorate in divinity and he published enormous uh, pages, you know, reams and reams of stuff supporting slavery. But what he says was, exact same things you hear today, this is the clear, clear and unambiguous will of God. Anybody who opposes slavery is denying the true meaning of scripture. It's, you know, it's, you read and you think, hang on, was this 2022? Well, no, it's 1847. Yeah, yeah. The quality of women, interracial marriage, remarriage of divorced people, and a million other things, m- most of which aren't even in scripture. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's pretty straightforward to to say um, to to defeat that sort of argument if 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 you have somebody who's willing to enter into that debate. But the other one about the literalism, because they're always going about we're following it literally. You're not. And I always say, fine. Let's just read Luke 15. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, the older son, the younger son, you know the story. And then you say to them, so there was a man who had two sons? Oh, of course not. Well, why not? Well, there was, it's a parable. It's, there's no man with two sons. But how do you know it's, it doesn't say it's a parable? It just says a man, Jesus, who we, you were saying is the, we've got to say everything he does exactly the way he says it, da-da-da-da-da. He said this man had two sons. Now you're telling me that you're, there wasn't a man with two sons. Oh, well, it's a parable. You know, we're reading it this way. Okay, let's skip that. This is my body. This is my blood. So that's Jesus' body. Oh, no, 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 no. That's symbolic. But where does it say it's symbolic? I mean, you can just, com- you can just go over this thousands and thousands and thousands of examples like this. So I think yeah. it's a matter of demonstrating that they're not doing what they say they're doing. They're doing what we're doing, but often uh, with, that, with, with a whole lot of myths around language and, and the process of interpretation. Well, a point you make in one of the articles you've written about this is that if there were 1,000 unambiguous, clear verses in the Bible that were pro-same-sex marriage, 
those who are anti-same-sex marriage would still be anti-same-sex marriage. And if there were a thousand unambiguous passages anti-same-sex marriage, those who are pro-same-sex marriage would probably still be pro-same-sex marriage. It's almost what I say. <laughs> almost what you say. Sorry, I will it's, let you say it a little bit more accurately. It's, it's a thought experiment. And I, what I actually emphasise in that is, is what I call the hesitation. So every, for all those who support same-sex marriage, if we discovered a, in, in our Bible um, not six, maximally six passages that, that condemn it, imagine if there was 400 passages... I'd say most of those people would hesitate before they might change their mind and, and many of those people wouldn't change their mind because they've come to the view that there's nothing morally wrong with same-sex marriage. And flip it around, the other hesitation is all those who, who oppose same-sex marriage, and I'm just focusing on that one little part of this big question you know, in the LGBTIQA plus space, right? And I want to acknowledge that for, for some people it, just focusing on same-sex marriage is, is part of the problem, right? Because it, it's, it's within a binary system etc so just that disclaimer but um so all the people who oppose it imagine if there was a thousand passages that celebrated it that gloried in it that you know the whole song of songs rather than this ambiguous thing possibly a teenage girl and a young man maybe there's a third person we just don't know but if it was just absolutely crystal clear that there were two, two young men or two young women and you know and so it's the woman says her breasts are like the towels of lebanon you know what i mean enables a, a glass of red wine that's in the Song of Songs, right? <laughs> Would all those people suddenly believe in same-sex marriage? And again, I think there'll be a hesitation. And so the hesitation there is that little space that tells us it's not just the scriptures that are, that are helping us come to our final decision around moral issues, that the scriptures is one voice, personal experience is one voice, um, uh, you know, arguments, moral logic. And I think this is fundamental. If you take all the books of all the people who've changed their mind about, um, uh, let's just say, uh, all the issues in the LGBTIQA plus space, so Gushy's book, which is called Changing Our Mind, Brownson's book on, on God and sexuality, etc., they almost all have the same pattern. They've, and I've read virtually all of these books, dozens and dozens of them in the last 20 years, They've come from a conservative worldview. They've been taught all their life that this is a sin. They've believed that. And some of them are, are scholars, like Actemar is a scholar. Brownson was a professor of New Testament at a, Calv a Calvinistic uh, Reformed college. And what happens next? Brownson tells a beautiful story. His 17-year-old, strapping, athletic, handsome son, who was popular with all the, the young ladies in the church youth group, comes to him to him and his wife and says, I'm gay. And he said, suddenly all those arguments didn't quite seem so secure. All the things I just assumed. So he, then he went about and he re-examined it all over and over again and, and, and changed, he, he changed his mind. And that's what happens. It's personal encounter. It could be with one's own desires, which have been you know, denied. It could be you know, a child, a brother, a sibling, a sister. Uh, and that, that's and so we, we we know encounter changes the way we think about all of the everything to do with the Christian faith. Um, mm. And and so I can't quite remember the question, but just <laughs> I think I well, answered is, your question. Oh, about the, the the image of the people. Yeah. So it's the it's yeah. the relationship of the scripture 
It's, for me, what we need to sort out is where does Scripture sit in the entire ecology of Christian doctrine and the formation of Christian doctrine and the coming to have a view? And, where does that, and what role does experience play, reason, science? E.g., we have to come to a view, for instance, about intersex. Scripture has nothing to say specifically. There are theological principles, there are moral imperatives, but we need science to tell us what this is like because we have to make moral judgments. We have to decide, or individuals have to decide if their child is, uh, if they're informed at birth that the child has, because this is one of the big issues, right, that what's been happening for, for a long time is the parents are told immediately you have to make a decision to, and we can surgically uh, adjust, as it were, the child one way or the other. What would you like sometimes? Mm. And it's, it, you know, the stories of intersex people are very, very you know, moving, they're tough and they're difficult. And, 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 uh, so to come to a decision, does the church have a view on this? Well, we, uh, which Bible book are you going to go to, right? Um, and if your premise for opposing, say, for instance, same-sex marriage and or supporting male headship if your premise is gender complementarity, that, that male and female is, is sort of baked on to the universe, that, that this is a fundamental thing, that it reflects Christ and the church, um, uh, God's relationship to the world as a covenant, then you've got trouble. You're in, you're in trouble, right? Because you've got this theological idea that gender complementarity is somehow a universal truth. And that's why we have to rethink all of these things in order to ask uh, questions about all the issues around human sexuality. Mm. Well, and, and it's not every day when you have a conversation like this that you have somebody on the panel with their PhD in uh, evolutionary microbiology. But Peter Cat is sitting here with a microphone. So, um, <laughs> Peter, something, that, something you have often said on the podcast, which, you know, as someone who to my great shame in front of you, did drop science at the end of year 10, had no idea about, is that biology <laughs> biology has no idea of, of binaries when it comes to gender. Can you just maybe share a little bit on that for those who maybe don't understand that and stick to this, this idea that there's a biblical view that male and female, as Matthew said, is baked into the universe? Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, um, certainly biologically there are, there are people who have... X, X, Y, and, and so therefore are what you call indeterminate gender. Um, but more importantly, it is that our chromosomes are only a guide to the way that we develop. And so as Matthew has just said, there are intersex people. So there are people who are born with uh, non-binary genitals. And as Matthew said, parents are forced to choose a binary identity for that child who is actually intersex. So they're not a binary person. Uh, and then when it comes to gender, which is uh, very different to sex, uh, we are cultural animals and so we actually narrate ourselves. And so understanding the relationship between the complexity of being human and something really quite as simple as genetics is, is um, a very, well, it's a complexifying um, issue for us. And so it's actually, it's actually that our biology, or biologically, we are incredibly complex creatures. And then when we add our sense of consciousness mixed with culture, 
mixed with uh, family dynamics, uh, our understanding of ourselves is really complex. Mm. The biology is complex enough, but then when we add the layers of actually being human, not just being a set of chromosomes, um, we do a disservice, I think, if we try to reduce ourselves to something as simple as a binary. So why, why have Christians on the whole, or, or maybe the conservative wing of Christianity, why, where has the love of the binary come from? Why is there such a, an attachment to viewing the world in these binaries? Well, I, well my, my understanding is that we inherited binaries from the Roman, Greco-Roman system, Plato. Um, Plato has this fascination with dark and light, um, then the Manichees, Augustine was influenced by, uh, really saw everything in terms of binaries. And so we actually inherited binary thinking from a culture out of which Christianity grew or which Christianity interacted with. And it was one of the things we took into uh, the faith. It was the binary um, platonic philosophical view. And we've just run with it for 2,000 years, and it was really only when the postmodern uh, philosophers came along that we actually began to question it. Yeah. And now, um, thankfully, we've got uh, feminist theologians and feminist philosophers are also asking us to unwind all of that, to look at how sophisticated life really is. I think there's another whole dynamic, I totally agree with everything Peter said, but one of the things we, we, we learn in biblical interpretation and studying theology and if we study sociology, political science, you should ask the question, you know, who benefits from this? You know, where's, yeah. the, where's the power lie? Who benefits from gender complementarity, especially when that unfolds into a man is the head of the household? Men, right? Married men. Who, who benefits from thinking of forms of disability as a sign of God's judgment in the world? Able-bodied people who benefits from saying that to interpret scripture properly you need to know the original languages and, ha and have all this expertise, highly educated. So very quickly you find the, the person at the top of the privilege tree is the white, able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-class, educated, speaking the language of the colonizer, mm. you know, non-First Nation, you can just add it, add it, add it, add it. And so there's a lot of vested interests why was slavery supported so strongly? Because it was an eco economic boom mm. for people who owned slaves. Mm. Like, so they had the ideology, but there's, there's politics, there's, there's ec economics. And one of the critical things to understand in the current debate in the Anglican Church of Australia is if you support, again, just focusing on same-sex marriage to help, for the sake of the argument, if you support specifically same-sex marriage, you cannot support male headship, right? Uh, just a very simple way to think about it this way, because you either then have, if you wanted male headship and female submission, you'd have two heads or two submissives, right? Just to put sure. it bluntly and uglily, <laughs> ugly, whatever. Um, and so gender complementarity, which is the one of the key ideas un, uh, supporting the opposition, because they just say it's following the Bible, but actually what it is, they, I honestly don't think they they at one level that I don't think there's a like like so let's let, let's compare with women's ordination right with women's ordination we've all agreed to have differences of opinion and just go along with one another 
and at the end of the day, just having ordained women over here didn't upset their apple cart if they opposed that and didn't upset us that they, they didn't have that or did, but we could live with one another. So why is this the hill that they want to die on? Why is this the line in the sand, as they call it? Because the acceptance of this theology upends the entire system of male, I think, uh, so much of the ideology that supports white male power. Mm. When I say white there, that's the sort of the archetype. It's not always necessarily white. But you, I think you all know everyone's nodding. And, and critically important in this, you're not just nodding here, the 50 of us, you know, listening in. What I think we've seen this week is the culture reject that form of fundamentalistic Christian Christianity. Listen to the comments on Facebook, the comments on the newspapers, the what the journalists themselves are saying. I think there's a wholesale rejection of fundamentalist Christianity that thinks men are uh, superior to women uh, or have a headship over women within the family and within the church in the, their context. And that rejects uh, all the issues around LGBTQIA plus equality, right? Because the people in the public, we get it. We, we, when we had these debates 20 years ago, we were arguing a lot more about little individual passages. But we've all been, in, a lot of us have been, we've learned about power. It's been named. We've learned about the issues about disability and social models versus medical models. We've heard the stories of First Nations people here and all around the world. We've seen the collapse of apartheid. We've seen the Berlin War come down. Um, we, we now get it. And very much tied up with this, what I, in the Gomorrah story, the Sodom story, I should say, uh, we've had huge insights in, from our understandings now around domestic violence and intimate partner violence and how people use power to maintain domination. So I think the context in which this debate's happening, the general public is having a whole lot of different thoughts uh, about it and, 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 and feels confident to judge and reject that form of stuff. And what struck me in some of the media work I've done this week, as I said unexpectedly, the great gift that, that occurred when this denomination was launched, really, in the, the gift in the sense of it's given us a chance to talk about our side. There's been people on Sydney Morning Herald say, well, I've never been religious and... And I'm not going to become religious, but I didn't even know there was another version. You know, I thought that was Anglicanism. You know, if if I'm not religious, but if I was going to be religious, maybe maybe that would be something worth looking at. So we've been able to articulate uh, our vision, which we continually say it's inclusive, it's affirming, it's welcoming, it's comprehensive. But I also like to reiterate a lot of those problems I've just talked about. Are very much present also in, you know, as it were, in our side. Uh, it's not like we're innocent of all these problems, you know. So it's that self-critical path as well. That's just that's why I'm, I'm always say we say, and I'll stop after this. We, we, we ha- from where I'm standing, the Anglican Church needs to be involved in three forms of, or at least three, but the sort of three critical forms of speech and action. And the first one has to be sorry. This is our, you know, sorry for the harm, the pain that LGBTIQA plus people have experienced, peoples with disabilities have experienced, First Nations, so on and so on. We need to say no to the language that diminishes, that says you're not a real Christian, that says we don't want to have anything to do with you, that sort of diminishing, dehumanising language, and we need to say yes 
to blessing people, including welcoming, loving, because that is the path of Jesus. Right? That's what we think Christianity is about. That's what we want to work towards. And, and actions and the actions must flow. People in privilege, like I, if I all those boxes, all, all, all those things I mentioned before, white, middle-aged, colonizer culture, able-bodied, I tick, I tick every box, right? So part of this has been my own journey to understand I've, I'm, I'm a, I've benefited from privilege. And one of the most important things I've learned, um, and, and everyone here would probably tick several of those boxes. Like it's not like, and that's the whole point of what they call intersectionality, right? We, we, we're a mixture. I just happen to have had a very privileged life. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, fortunately, I don't know. But the point is, People who have privilege in, in each of those areas, they always want to measure themselves by their intentions. Oh, I didn't mean for those people to be upset when I said we're not going to marry gay people. But people on the receiving end always measure by impact. You may have said that, you may have said it this way, that way, whatever, but what I felt was that God doesn't love me or that I'm diminished or that you don't want me, that I'm not valued, that I'm not equal. So this is part of the, our learning in the saying the sorry, the saying the no, saying yes, is also learning to measure ourselves in terms of the impact we're making. Like you were talking about, Peter, with the, the cathedral, what you talked about reparation, you know. If you may intend, you do intend to make reparation, you're going to measure the impact, and that's brilliant. Yeah. Mm. I, I, that was fantastic. I, I think the great gift, it's like the, the queering our theology is actually leading us to recognise the the intertwined nature of all of these things. I know many years ago when I was part of a church that did not ordain women, we had this conversation about, well, you know, people think that if we're going to ordain women that suddenly we're going to be marrying gay people. And I keep telling them they're two separate issues. And at the time, I was like, I don't think that's right, though. I think there's something wrong with the way you're thinking. And as you, you realise that this is about who gets to be free. Yeah, and yeah, it's about yeah. who gets to be owned by others and who gets to be the owner, you know, who gets to be the coloniser and who gets to be the colonised. And that, that plays out in so many, in all of these different areas. And there is a great gift, I think, right now to actually recognise we're not dealing with a whole lot of separate issues. We're actually dealing with issues of power and freedom. And it's time that as a church we said all those things. We started to move, make the move towards saying sorry and recognising all of the harm in all those different realms, recognise our shared human experience and how that plays out in so many different areas. Instead of, I think, when we're dividing and looking at things as separate issues, we're missing what's really going going on underneath and we also miss out just shared humanity and and one of the reasons i'm passionate about um this is yeah exactly what you've just said sue that if we make progress in the area in human sexuality we're doing a lot of the groundwork the, the philosophical theological doctrinal work that is going to be necessary to look in issues around disability and issues of First Nation, and you can go in every direction. You, they all help one another because there's deep commonalities about this. The way I, the commonality, I think the sort of the the simplest way to think of all these, the common thread through all of these things is just simply the question of human diversity. The the, the human the human project is just teeming with diversity, just as the natural world is. Like every you know, plants and animals, we just have this diversity. 
for some reason, or for lots of reasons, some of the ones I've talked about with power and, and we've, we've touched on, Protestant theology has continually pushed and, and generated and, and put pressure to create this homogenous, the archetype. So the, the thing about the white, uh, male, middle-class, educated, able-bodied, cissexual, you know, da-da-da-da-da, employed, it's not just that they're the people who have the power. For me, as a theologian, why is it that Protestant theology seems to have this this tendency to generate this type of archetype like it doesn't it doesn't seem to be able to naturally in in a lot of its forms to naturally generate and celebrate diversity well one of the big parts one of the big reasons is the way the creation stories are read they're read as a as a pattern as a unique single pattern male female man leaves his mother and father and clings to his wife or in hebrew clings to his woman the two become one flesh, and then this is read as a, a form of perfection. So that's one thing, but there's a whole whole lot of reasons. I'm re- I'm passionate about us rethinking um, Protestant theology in a sense from the ground up, so that so that we don't we're not being pushed towards these models of of the ideal, which mm. is, it picks up also some of what Peter was saying the the deeper philosophical ideas we've we've absorbed from you know thousands of years ago. That are part of our, our philosophical thing because we have to understand the refer in the Protestantism has its refer have its has its intellectual origins in a pre-modern world you know 16th century Germany and and we're still trying to sort out and get out I think of our system some of the ideas that are driving and pushing us through and what an exciting time to be alive and an exciting time I think to be part of the church even though it's fraught, <laughs> but we, we, we get to look. I did my theological studies 25 years ago, and none of, almost none of this was discussed just 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. What a wonderful time to be around and thinking, having language having, and being able to learn from intimate partner violence research and all these things we've been talking about and have that enrich our Christian faith, our reading of Scripture. Hmm. Well, and, and I think well, maybe one of the, the complexities is for a lot of people... Um, and we've chatted about this many times in previous episodes, their faith or their, their church encourages them to have fewer questions rather than more. And, and As Karl Marx said, or that was it Lenin, one of, one of them said the purpose of religion is to stop children asking certain questions. Yeah, right, <laughs> Unfortunately, right. it's very effective. <laughs> well, I, I, I remember you know, the, the youth group I was a part of, and there was this idea that that this book, this Bible, was the authority, all the answers you were looking for could be found in there. And if you, maybe, if something in you felt differently to what you were reading here, you were wrong, it was right. And, of course, as you said at the beginning of the conversation, it wasn't the book that was right, it was the person who was telling you how to read the book. That reading was right. But there, there is this, I think, this desire to find the right answers. And maybe I'll, I'll throw this one maybe to you, Peter, because that is a human instinct, is we're always trying to make things simpler easy to understand we all have this myth this fantasy that somewhere out there someone's got the book of answers someone can tell us the secrets someone can take away the mystery and all this complexity that we hate having to live with day to day what do we do with that instinct in us to you know to homogenize things as matthew was saying rather than live into the diversity and the complexity yeah Yeah, good question um Certainly evolution, in, in terms of evolutionary terms, we, we have been taught to actually operate on very small amounts of information. So um, you know, the idea is that when you're um, 
when you're facing a, uh, uh, a threat, you actually make a very quick assessment and you run away or you defend yourself. And you don't take into account a whole lot of the information that's available uh, about the, the thing that's running at you and you don't sort of count its teeth and so on. You just run away from it. Um, so we have this evolutionary tendency to, to um, react to small amounts of information and once we've made a decision, we, we continue down that path. Uh, the modern world uh, is way more complex than the environment in which we lived um, only a few thousand years ago. And so we are still tending to try and uh, respond simply to something that's become really, really complex. And so we have to un we have to have to learn techniques that allow us to engage in ways that are against our nature. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we've, we are fortunate enough to have such a sophisticated consciousness and intellect. But we actually have to know who we are. So that, you know, part of part of the religious experience is coming to understand who we are and how we relate to uh, the other. And we have to embrace complexity. Mm. Can I say something about this? I think. It you mentioned before, Peter, about a lot of these things are cultural, like around gender and identity, and I, but I think the drive to certainty, there is that, as you said, that evolutionary drive. But I think it is a particular problem within Christianity and some forms of Christianity more so that that drive for certainty. We've been encultured into thinking it's a, it's a religion about answers. We've been enculturated into thinking we're, we're right and everybody else is wrong. And if you, this goes right back, you know, in brutal ex examples like the Crusades mm. and this sort of divine right. One of the ways I'd unwind, you, know, you can laugh if you want, but I love Netflix. And I'm on to season five of, the, of Vikings. Have any, any of you seen Vikings? <laughs> it's fabulous. But it's, I've actually found it incredibly striking because there's a lot about the clash of Christianity and the Norse religions but also just the way the English kings and, and people continually appeal to God and are so certain that God's on their side, just as they're about and even doing these unbelievably barbaric acts. And so I've been watching this and thinking that's, that's the heritage I've come from, my, my Christianity's come from. Because if you asked a Jewish rabbi about the nature of religion, when I heard a while back said, well, Judaism's a religion of questions. Christianity is a religion of answers. And I'm an Old Testament scholar. I'm, a lot of my colleagues are Jewish, and I, and I read a lot of Jewish material. And I think this, this is in, in a lot of forms of Judaism, not all of them, because they also have their fundamentalists, but there is this basic sense that everything's open and, and we can question. We can question God. And they, have, they, they tell their children's stories as they're growing up, God says something or rather in the scripture in the Old Testament or Hebrew, the Bible as they would typically call it and and the rabbis argue with God and then and then God sticks to the same thing that God was saying and then the rabbis come to the conclusion well you're clearly wrong <laughs> and that's it you know and then they move on and there's all these variations I mean a beautiful example they do it in different ways than the way we do it they often tell a biblical story they add a little bit or take a little bit out 
which alerts you to what some of the things they're wrestling with. So in the story of the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, where God says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him up on the mountain in the place I shall show you. And he prepares, uh, Abraham prepares. They go up the hill with the fire, the wood. And as they're going up, and in one of the Jewish retellings of the story, they insert the, uh, they add a new verse, and the donkeys turned around and said to Abraham, because he's got donkeys carrying stuff, the donkeys turned around and said to Abraham, did God really tell you to sacrifice your only son? <coughs> and then, the, and then they just keep going. I'm so hearing a, that in the donkey voice from Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> that's just me. So that, that's that, that questioning. Mm. And I think what we do, yeah, that's true. But I think what, what we're seeing with this, what I think the Australian public is rejecting and what I'm wanting to say no to is, is forms of Christianity which, which have that, that sort of addiction to certainty, to being right, and more so than that to, to saying, if you don't agree with us, you're wrong. And if you want to persist in being wrong in the way we think you're being wrong, then you can't be married, you can't be a minister, you can't hold an office in our church, da-da-da-da-da. And, of course, they're going to respond back and they say, oh, what is this, just a moral free-for-all? You know, we're just going to ordain and marry just about anything and anyone that's moving. You know, of course, that's a straw man argument, isn't it? Mm. Like, um, and there's ways of addressing all those sorts of questions. And that, that's really a rhetorical ploy, which, which can happen. So I, I think it is there's an evolutionary thing, but it's combined with this toxic addiction to certainty. Somebody, mm. a lecturer once said to me, Matthew, fundamentalism is the need to be right. The need, it's mm. like a, a psychological need to be well, right. It's, it's a fear-based, it's the fear of being wrong. Therefore, you have yes, to that's another be way certain of it. about being right. And it's also this incredible desire to be pure, and there's, and I think that's sort of an over uh, reading of some of the imagery about being washed and clean, and and the early church had that hang up too that if you if you were baptized and then you sinned, there was sort of no recourse, and so you know, like uh, Constantine waited until his deathbed to get baptized just to make sure he got in you know he got through <laughs> got across the line and so i mean there's so again there's this sort of echo from from the uh, roman greco um, philosophy about being pure and being light and not being dark and and the fear of falling out of one side of the binary into the other. And, you know, and Puritanism is, I think, first and foremost driven by a really deep, profound fear of being wrong. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and, and I suppose something you do right when we're looking at how we use the Bible, Matthew, you say, Scripture shows us how the people of God come to make moral and theological judgments rather than providing the substantive content of those judgments. So we're, we, we use Scripture to figure out how people come to make judgments, not to find the judgments that then we need to accept and live by. And, and in that spirit, I remember something you said at this, this dinner that, um, that we were at last night, which stuck out to me, is one of your arguments in, in favour of, I suppose, just for a moment again on, on same-sex marriage, is when you look at all of these issues over history, slavery, um, women's ordination, um, now same-sex marriage, the movement seems to be consistently, on the whole, in the, big in the big picture, one way. You don't find whole masses of people waking up 
who yesterday or last week were pro-same-sex marriage, who then wake up and say, actually, I've changed my mind. I now think it is wrong. It, the movement seems to be in one direction. So if we talk about, you know, being discerning as Christians, discerning what the spirit is doing, what the movement is, where the thing's going, in a sense, you, you can kind of, you can get a, a picture of it from reality itself. For sure. And sometimes that criticism against you know, uh, people who have the sort of theological uh, story and, and understanding that I do is that they say, you're following culture. And I say, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> Culture figured that out. They're like ten years ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. Uh, that maybe the spirit is working through that because the spirit just got so fed up with trying to get the church to work it out. Mm. <laughs> you know, like so. So I like to turn the arguments back back on their head. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing is, the other thing is, the culture hasn't. This culture hasn't. Very few, maybe I don't know if no cultures have. But let's take another example, like bestiality, like Christian, non-Christian people, like uh, societies over and over and over again, all through history, come to the same. Many of the moral judgments are very similar. So in marriage, the idea that there's this, there's a there's a, um, a sanctity of that relationship that they belong to to one another and not to others, and it gets you know there there are a few unusual. There are a few cultures where it seems more porous, and of course we could talk about polygamy and things like that, but that takes us into other areas. But So what I'm saying is it's not like culture's made a whole lot of dumb decisions over the, over the years. Mm. Like there's no culture that just allows random killing of people for no reason, okay? Like mm. it would just be chaos. So, but also if God speaks to, to the whole creation and through Scripture, then there's always going to be cases where there's going to be uh, uh, hints or ideas that we, we discover through our engagement with culture. What I'm trying to also say is that they're doing the same, mm. but pretending they're not or thinking they're not. Mm. Can I also say that when... Uh, so one of the... There's another critical idea here. We've talked about homogeneity and, heterog uh, and difference, right? Like sameness and difference. So for me, being faithful to Scripture in accord with the, the quote you said... I like to use as many examples as possible of where the people of God within the Scripture are arguing with one another. So the Deuteronomist, the book of Deuteronomy, basically says, in a nutshell, if you obey God, you'll be blessed. You'll get lots of fruit and, and children and crops. And if you disobey God, you're going to be cursed and your children's children and, you know, it's just going to rattle on. It's going to be, you know. So you, you follow God, things will go well. You don't follow God, things will go poorly. Job comes along, well, the author of Job comes along and just basically blows an enormous raspberry at that and says, here's a man who does absolutely everything right. Even Satan agrees. In fact, Satan actually has the idea this man does um, nothing wrong and God and Satan get together and say in, in the story, um, they agree, right? God and, and, and in the Hebrew it's the Satan. So whether... You know, let's just leave aside the question of what that's referring to. <laughs> they agree, and so and then Job loses everything. Loses everything. It happens over and over and over. Some of the prophets say, "Israel alone is my child. Is, is my child. Israel alone is my favoured one. Among all the nations, Israel is the one I love." And then one of the minor prophets says, "Egypt, my firstborn." Uh, Syria, Assyria, my, my, my chosen one. And Egypt and Assyria were like archetypes for, they're like the Antichrist in the Old Testament. They're like the, the, 
They're symbols for the biggest, nastiest, most anti-Israelite thing possible. You know, and this happens every over and over again. Another classic example. You know, how's God revealed typically? Like you take Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter three. It's probably in the clean pages in your Bible, <laughs> because it's not, it's, it's not a favourite text. No one's got Habakkuk three tattooed on their shoulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go figure. <laughs> How does God appear there in the storm and the thunder and the, the lightning and, and, and this, this epiphany or theophany, as we would say? How does God appear in, 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 a, in, in the seven-day walk from Egypt to, to Israel, which took them 40 years, you would have killed for a compass, the, in, the, in, in the cloud and the fire, right? Um, that's the typical way. And so this story, which we all think is lovely and wonderful and we use in spiritual direction, and, and it's cool that we do that and it's wonderfully in, in a reflective. It's actually crazily radical, the story of God's not in the thunder, God's not in the storm, God's not in the cloud, but in the still, small voice. And most Israelites would go, what? What are you, are you kidding me? Now, God's always in the thunder and the... This, what's this still, small voice thing, you know? So that's part of you know, learning to, to read in the context. So... And I've just given you three examples we could go over and over and over. In the New Testament, you know, the, the, we have three synoptic gospels, and John, a, a gospel that's, when I say three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke have a lot of text in, in common. They tell stories in common. The overall shape of Jesus' life in the, the chronology of events is pretty similar. A lot of, most scholars think that Matthew and Luke borrowed. Um, from Mark, like took text from Mark, and that they borrowed from another document, which we don't have, called Q. This is a pretty much the consensus in biblical studies, with a few variations. But John, John has a different chronology. The whole period of Jesus' ministry is a different length. Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of John's uh, of his ministry in John's gospel, at the end in the other gospels. And what is Jesus most famous for in Matthew, Mark, Luke? Parables. What do we find in John? No parables. How does John tell the story of Jesus? It's seven, five, six, seven major signs, turning the water into wine, raising of Lazarus. Are the other three Gospels interested in that? Not really, and they don't use this idea. So just within the story of Jesus we have this. You know, Barnabas and um, uh, Peter left Paul because they couldn't work with, with him anymore. They had a fierce disagreement. That's the, the language in the, in, in the Greek. So, so what I'm saying is they're sort of dispute disagreement and, and and trying to find the way is what's happening in the scriptures itself so being faithful to scripture means getting into that sort of debate and that's what i mean when i say scripture doesn't contain doctrine it's not like something that we excavate and then we find and we apply greek and grammatical analysis and whoosh go out comes the trinity <laughs> and because the people who found the trinity were very clear about that that's not where it was found it wasn't coming out of the text in any uh, uh, direct way they would say no the holy spirit has revealed it to us um, but rather what the scripture is doing is witnessing to the way the people of god work out what their doctrine is which is constantly evolving it took the church 1500 years in the, our side of the church the protestant side 1500 years give or take to get clarity that God's gift to us in Christ is utterly and completely free, you know, the Reformation, right? Like That's a long time. 1,850 years, give or take, to decide that you can't own another person and that but fundamentally people are equal. 
1950, 60, 70 years, where are we in the 20th century, to, to come to cl absolute clarity that men and women are completely and utterly equal in every respect, right? Like almost 2,000 years to come to this total clarity. Mm. Like we're, all, we're, it's, we're always evolving, and, and, but the evolution, the debate, the discussion, it's in the scriptures itself. So being faithful to scripture, 150% faithful to the scripture means engaging in these debates and, and discussing it and coming to a common mind and then uh, together, if we formed a church, forming a new church seems to be all the rage <laughs> at, at the moment. <coughs> if, those, if those of us, just hypothetically in this room, formed a new church, we could say we're going to believe in this doctrine, doctrine A, B, C, D, and if we all agreed, we could sign a statement saying that's what we believe and off we go. Because uh, the, the official teaching of, of a church is always what the community decides. That's what we see. Yeah. It's not what Matthew Anstey thinks or Peter Catt or Sue or any of you. The Anglican Church of Australia, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. has mm -hmm. the thing. So in, th in this way I'm very Catholic, lower C Catholic, in that the, it is the church that comes to that, that decides this is our beliefs, the creeds, etc., etc. So there's a couple of questions I have as we make our way to wrapping up the, the conversation. The first is just, I guess it's a bit of a thought experiment. It's something that plays on my mind a little bit, is if you can chart throughout history, and I might throw this one to you, Peter, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one maybe first, and I think I might have asked you before um, as well, so you've had a little bit of a heads up at some stage in the last few years. Um, <laughs> if you can remember. <laughs> notes the last few years. Let me just check. I, uh, I, the interesting thing is when you look at slavery, you look at women's ordination, you look at same-sex marriage, and what you find is the same argument, in a sense, happening again and again mm. and again. Um, yep. and, and eventually you look back and you would imagine we would look back in 50 or 100 years on the same-sex marriage debate and all sides of the church would go, that was a bit absurd that we had that mm. debate. What was all that about? So my, the thing I'm curious about is what do you think might be next? Yeah, that's my, that is, well, that is what are all, we missing? That, what is are we missing my, that, that is my question is what, what in 150 years will, will people look back and say, I can't believe that they tolerated that? Yeah. Because it, we are blind to the next thing. And so part of the humility that um, we need to uh, develop is realising that at the moment we are per perpetrating uh, injustices against, and I suspect the next thing is actually discovering that the planet or the other creatures are actually our neighbours mm. and that we have uh, visited the most horrendous form of holocaust on God's creatures, uh, and I think we're going to have to develop that language in order to get ourselves out of um, not just climate change. Climate change is a problem, but the eco-catastrophe is way worse. Um, so I suspect but we're going to go through the same arguments. We, turn, we have got a binary where we see us versus them, the other creatures, us not being part of nature. Um, we have the idea of uh, us being dominant over the other thing and that everything else is there for our use. You know, it's very similar to the idea of a woman being given to a man so that he can have a comfortable life. I mean, just you, so I suspect that is the next thing. Mm. But, I, but even beyond that, I still, you know, 
have that great deep concern that there's stuff that I'm doing which I take as just part of the air I breathe and the culture that I'm in that is perpetuating some form of massive injustice that I can't even see. And so asking that question, what, if, what in 150 years will they look back and say, gee, I can't believe that they tolerated that. Yeah. That Peter Cat guy, he was a real, you know, the statue of Peter Cat will be torn down. <laughs> <coughs> well, I mean, that, that, but that is, that is the thing, isn't it? That is the thing. The, when, You're laughing a little bit too much at that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> When you, well, when you, meet the, when you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, that sense of we're tearing down statues now of people who were just doing culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can see it for patriarchy and colonialism. And yes, there were other voices that were saying we shouldn't be doing this. But what is it that, is, that we are perpetuating that needs to, will need to be faced and what is it that I'm in great fear of justifying because I benefit from it? Yeah, and that, that humility whenever we read the, the scripture, whenever we engage in these conversations, I suppose is the, the best um, way we can attempt to not fall into the, the traps that we've spoken about today. Well, maybe as a closing question, and I'll throw this one to you, Sue, um, on this particular matter, People will have come here tonight to this live event or tuned into the podcast for a whole variety of reasons. But when it comes to marriage, sexuality, intimacy, relationships, um, these are very personal areas. People will have their own personal questions. And I imagine if we ran around the room and everyone wrote down their personal question, you would see questions about how can I make this marriage work? You'd see questions about um, should I be with this person or not? You'd see questions about what do I do about intimacy in this space? My, my point is just to say we speak about diversity. There would be an, an immense diversity of the inner landscapes people are occupying in relation to these big topics right now. And in the face of this complexity, we're all probably looking to some extent for guidance, for wisdom. How do I discern what's right? How do I discern which way to go? How do I discern what is needed and what is healthiest and what is best? How can we, do you think, um, come to these this sense of clarity? How can we discern these things? If the Bible isn't going to be there to give us the clear answers, how do we discern um, these these very deeply important issues? I, I think the first thing is to be uh, to say that it's really important that we recognise relationships are so subjective and contextual. Anyone who's in an intimate relationship here, I can't look at you and tell you what your relationship's like. It's deeply intimate and deeply personal and, and there is this thing between people, there's, there's you and the other person, then there's this thing called the relationship that has a quality all of its own. And so we need to recognise that we've been tasked with ourself. We've been tasked to discern and the great tragedy of the church is that it has taken that discernment away from us in the area of sexuality and marriage. It's, it's robbed us of the capacity to discern what is truly good. And it said, no, this, this heterosexual marriage, that is the only thing that's good for life. No matter what happens in it, that's good and you've got to stick with that. And it's robbed our, our deepest knowing of when we can say that's actually wrong or it's violent or it's dehumanising, we've been robbed of that capacity to read that. Or we've been robbed of a chance for some people to even express their, their intimate love because we've put 
the only people who are allowed to have an intimate sexual relationship uh, is a heterosexual couple. So we've taken away, by making everything into objective um, right and wrong when it comes to relationships, something that should never be objective at all, but is deeply subjective, deeply personal and contextual. And what we need to do is empower one another to listen deeply, to, to share, but also, you know, the Holy Spirit has a role to play in this, discerning where there is life, where you can find a way and, and, and navigate the intricacies of relationships that really can make committed, loving relationships that make life worthwhile, you know, and get away from the, the script of this is what it's got to look like and start doing the honest work of integrity, commitment um, and deep love for one another. Yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful answer. And what role do you reckon, Matthew, that uh, the Bible can play in, in us doing that? I just like Sue answers so much. Copy and paste. I'm soaking, soaking it up. It was beautifully expressed. Cool. What did you ask me? Just the role. <laughs> just the role the Bible can play in that discernment process. How, I guess what I'm asking you is, is how can we fall in love with the Bible in a way that is sustainable and, and actually helps us, not hinders us in this space? I think we've we've talked about um, a whole a whole lot. Of, we've we've given bits and pieces of answers to that, and there, there are more there are more parts to that. I think the one thing we haven't stressed enough, which which I would like to really stress, is that um, we must we must change our thinking to begin with we rather than I, and it's what we as a community do. And this is out of my work in disability theology and disability. Because whenever the model is, you know, I investigate, I debate, I, I do this, I do that, it rule, rules out certain members of the community, rules out us all out when we're very young and very old, typically, mm. and others. So what we, what we say about what it means to be a person of faith, I'm, my, I always use what's called the Bethany hermeneutic. Sorry. <laughs> Bethany's my goddaughter, and she's got a very severe... It's a very, very severe um, disability, so non, not just non-verbal, non-communicative. And, and, and her and her, her father, my friend Damien, we both have a, you know, PhDs in, in theology and stuff, and, and we talk about the Bethany hermeneutic, and I apply that to everything. So every statement I make about what it means to be Christian, uh, well-being, life, if it, doesn't, if it can't be uh, um, made manifest... In Bethany's life, then it, it can't be made manifest in anyone's life. Mm. Sorry, a bit emotional. <laughs> we ha so that shift from I to we, and because we're all in, we're all in, we all have periods in life of when we when we are not able to participate the way we we, we think. You know, my my father has advanced dementia, for instance, and that so many of us are wrestling with this. So it's 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 that. So script, you asked about scripture, we read together, we pray together, uh, who are we together? And so every individual does not have to say the Lord's Prayer or do A, B, C, D or be married or any of these things, but we as a community need to have these values in common. Mm. So that, that, that's a challenge. And I also think that's one of the, the next challenges along with the environment and they're tied together about thinking uh, communally and in many ways we can learn a lot about this from other cultures who are more oriented or oriented more basically as we rather than I mm. and often First Nations cultures 
of that, but also in Asia and Africa and other uh, other places. Of yeah, yeah. So yeah, wonderful. Finish with that. <laughs> Beautiful place to land the conversation. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank you so much, Matthew. Can we thank the panelists for the podcast today? It has been a uh, joy to share this conversation and uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast soon.